0: Hello sci-fi fans, this is Eve Miles from Torchwood And you're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner
1: Podcast It's awesome You're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast Serving the latest news in sci-fi multimedia And now, your hosts Scott, Miles and M. Your table is ready
0: Live long and prospered. This is the captain. We have a little problem with our entry sequence so we may experience some slight turbulence and then explode.
1: I got a bad feeling about this. Walter, put the cow away, would you? What is this place? Yeah. It's a freak show.
2: welcome to the sci-fi diner tonight and with me i have a wonderful woman that's been involved with the world of science fiction for 30 plus years she has been editing in the world of science fiction for that amount of time editing for omni all the way to tor.com and and has won numerous awards for her for her, her editing expertise and skill. I guess you would say she's won numerous Hugo's, Locus Award. She's won the Bram Stoker Award as well as the Lifetime Achievement for is it horror, I believe. Uh, but I'd like you to welcome to the podcast Ellen Datlow. Welcome.
0: Thank you. It's so, lovely to be here.
2: It's great to have you here. I was mentioning earlier when we were talking that you know I run across the name you know. You know, attached to these anthologies of, of stories that you kind of fall in love with, and um, and, you, and you're one of these people that help bring these to fruition, bring them to life, and so that's that's it's so cool to be sitting down and chatting with you.
0: Thank you. Well, it's very satisfying for me to corrupt
2: people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. I want to find out just a little bit of a back a little bit of background. I mean, <clears throat> I guess two questions: uh, why? Science fiction, fantasy, and horror for you.
0: That's a hard. actually a hard question. Um, I've been reading. <laughs> Start oh, out no, with seriously. the hard one. <laughs> been, I mean, I've been reading. I've been reading it my whole life. Um, more fantasy and horror, but everything. I mean, when I was a kid, I was reading the Bullfitch's mythology. I was reading. I read whatever my parents had in the house. And they had a lot of the the, the little skinny um, hardcover popular library books. I think they were called Modern Library. I'm not sure which. But and they had Guy de Maupassant short stories and Hawthorne. And I read the Iliad and the Odyssey. Although I liked the Odyssey, but the Iliad was more fantastic. So I was always interested in fantasy. And um, over time, I became interested in horror and um, and also science fiction. I mean, I started reading. Most, you know, I, I, one thing I've realized, and it's taken me a long time to realize, is that I've always read short stories. I loved reading short stories. I started reading um, Edgar Allan Poe and Harlan Ellison and Ray Bradbury, and uh, a lot of collected short stories. Uh, my, one of my influ- one of the the anthologies that influenced me a lot was um, the Playboy Book of Horror and the Supernatural which is stories that had been published in Playboy over the years. And I read that when I was probably a young teenager, and I love that book. And I read it recently, again, so that I could write a little thing about it, a blurb about it. And a lot of the stories are still, you know, they stay with you. They're wonderful. Uh, but I didn't know who the writers were at the time. You know, I, I didn't know... I, you know, I was just a reader, and I and young, and I didn't, you know. And now I've re- I've met some of some of the writers I've met. I mean, there was a wonderful. I never met Ray Russell. He wrote um, Mr. Sardonicus. or Sardonicus it was made into a movie, and that's in that book. And uh, there's a lot of wonderful stories there. So I'm, and then I read Harlan Ellison's his own collections, but also Dangerous Visions. Again, Dangerous Visions. Um, I read the Judith Merrill. <clears throat> I'm trying to remember the best science fiction of the year, um, where she she influenced me a lot by by including not only genre material from science fiction magazines, but all kinds of writers like Philip Roth and I think John Updike and writers who were considered mainstream but wrote wrote in the fantastic literature genre. So it's just something I've always read. I didn't even know I knew nothing about science fiction fandom or any kind of I didn't even know magazines existed. When I got to Omni, I really wasn't familiar with the science fiction magazines. I read the anthologies, like The Best of the Year Anthologies from the 1968 to 72, by like Terry Carr and Don Walheim. <clears throat> so, it's just something I've always been interested. In. I've always I've always just loved the fantastic. Hmm. And if I, although I had a period of time where I was reading um, historical fiction that was, now looking back, they were kind of like pot boilers. Irving Stone, and, and some um, Howard Robbins later, who was not historical, but still. And I was reading that kind of stuff, but mostly I really liked work that had a fantastic element to it, fantastic of the grotesque. I loved John Fowler's early work. I liked, um, I liked Herman Hesse. Or his, I like Steppenwolf because I like the transformation in it, whether it was metaphorical or not. To me, when I was growing up, I just enjoyed it. It's like, oh, you know, animals. <laughs>
1: wow, of course. So,
0: uh, excuse me. So, it's something that I just always loved. Um, I can't analyze it more than that.
2: <laughs> nice, nice. So, so obviously, the background, the love of the literature and the fantastic. Is there uh, what made you want to become an editor of all things?
0: I didn't know what else to do, <laughs> I, and I don't remember, seriously, I mean, I always loved reading, I went to college, I took English literature, and I think, I didn't think of what I could do, I mean, I thought, well, I could work at a bookstore, I was, wow, that would be fun, or I could work in a library, um, my mother wanted me to become a teacher, because that's a great fallback, you know, you can, you know, you can, that's a good job, she was a teacher, and I said, no, the one thing I don't want to do, I do not want to be a teacher. I do not want to stand in front of a class and lecture, or yeah. class to, you know, to do that. And I'm not sure when the switch went. I don't even know how I became of what an editor. Were aware of what an editor was. But at a certain point um, after college, after college I went to Europe for a year and just traveled around. When I came back, I had to start looking for a real job. <clears throat> and I started looking for work in publishing. Um, I mean, I guess that was, you know, either libraries or bookstores or publishing, and that's what I figured, okay, I have to do one of those if I want to, you know, for reading and doing what I like. So I kind of fell into the idea of publishing, not really knowing. I don't remember the click, how I knew what an editor did or how editing worked or anything like that, but at some point, um, that's what I wanted to do.
2: Awesome. And so... Was Omni then your first job in editing?
0: No, I started working in mainstream uh in mainstream what do they call trade publishing uh, okay which is just rather than academic publishing or educational uh, my first job in book I started working in books in nineteen about seventy three I think I worked um my first job in publishing was the little brown um, New York office and I was assistant to the sales secretary and at that time, there was an actual dedicated reader, someone who read The Slush Pile. I mean, now people do it on the side, but then they actually had one person reading all the slush, and she got so much in that I read some of it for her. And um, I was there for several months, maybe six months, and then I found out that there was an editorial assistant job open in another house. And I was an editorial assistant for a few years through different houses through a series of Complicated, not complicated screw-ups. I mean, nothing... I, like, had three or four jobs in, like, five years. I was in... Um, I started at Charterhouse, which was subsumed by David McKay. My boss was left. my And David McKay and my boss broke his leg, and then the, the owners of that company walked out. <clears throat> and I was actually at Little Brown & Company. I'm sorry, not Little Brown. <clears throat> um, Holt Reinhart & Winston for three years, working for the... Um, the editor-in-chief. And I got nowhere. I really got... I mean, I learned a lot about working in an office, a lot about working in publishing. Um, I made connections, but I didn't really get anywhere in the three years I was at Holt Reinhardt & Winston. um, partly because it was very... My boss was a Yaley and he was very biased towards Yale. I mean, it was an Ivy League kind of thing. And so he never helped me. He didn't really push me as... Someone who could do, who could be promoted. Although he helped someone else's assistant, who was a Yale, be promoted. Um, and so it was like really an Ivy League kind of thing. But anyway, I mean, I enjoyed working at Holton. and I had, a, I learned a lot there. But I finally quit after three years because I, I, I realized I wasn't getting anywhere. And I had another job at Crown for a few months. Got fired for the first time, and well, first time in publishing, and the only time in publishing in my life that I actually got fired, which was a relief <laughs> from that job. But then the next job was Omni. So, I mean, I, between between around 74 and 79, I must have been, I was working in book publishing. And so the job at Omni in 1970, when I started in 79, was my first job with a magazine at all. And I was hired as associate fiction. So, yes, so my first job at, with a magazine was at Omni. Yeah. Before that, it was always book publishing. Although, while I was in book publishing, I started reading for various companies. Um, I started reading for the Book of the Month Club, for the Science Fiction Book Club. Yeah, I started there around 1979. And uh, I was hired as associate fiction editor when Bob Sheckley was made the fiction editor after Ben Bova was promoted to, I'm not sure exactly what the title, but editorial director. He had been... The fiction editor, and moved up. So I brought Bob in, and uh, Bob, well, Ben actually hired me, to, and I to be associate fiction editor. So that was my first magazine job.
2: Awesome. So, uh, so tell me, uh, what is it like? Uh, I guess. So, I mean, you've been in editing, like magazine editing on Omni, and then some online as well that you've you've done over the years. How has editing for you changed over the past 30 years? I mean that's quite a span of time to be in a profession and a, well, lot, a lot has happened in the publishing world uh throughout that time. What 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 has changed for you as you as you look at editing?
0: Well, it's the process is always the same as far as actually working with writers and working with the prose. Um, at Omni, of course, I was working, it was my first publishing, first magazine job, and I, it was also starting at the top as far as pay rate. So I got a lot of, but working at Omni, first of all, I was there a year and a half before I was made editor, fiction editor, um, Bob Sheckley left to write full time again. So at that point, working for a magazine that had a lot of money made a big difference. You know, I was able to attract a lot of big names. I was able to buy writers like William Burroughs, Joyce Carol Oates, Julio Cortazar, Stephen King. Um, and, it, and so that made, that helped me meet a lot of people who I would not have met necessarily otherwise, hmm. you know, big name writers. Oh yeah. So I worked there 17 years and worked with hundreds of, probably, I don't have many, but a lot of writers. Okay. <clears throat> Of course, then I edited, line edited, worked in pen, pen, pencil. You know, I actually did it by hand. Um, then Omni went online for about a year and a half. So anyway, after Omni, I never worked with, I never worked on a print magazine again. After that, I worked online only, um, with Omni Online, then Event Horizon, which was something I created with my former colleagues at Omni for a year and a half. Inside Fiction, where I worked for six years. And tour.com continues that, really. And I never thought I could edit online. I mean, I hated it. I hated the idea of it. But now it's just it really is easier. But as far as what I choose, if I choose anything different, first of all, my taste has changed over 30 years. So possibly things I bought 30 years ago, 35 years ago, I might not like anymore or love anymore but maybe I would, but obviously everyone's taste evolves, and also I got more into fantasy and horror than when I was working at Omni, At Omni I edited science fiction mostly, some fantasy and a little bit of horror, but over time I've edited more and more on fantasy and horror, and that's been because of the anthologies mostly, although at Event Horizon I could do whatever I wanted Science fiction, I could do whatever I wanted. Twitter.com, I can buy whatever I want, which I mean science fiction, fantasy, and horror. But I started doing the anthologies when I was at Omni, and the first anthologies I ever edited were Best of Omni. So those were all reprint anthologies. And then the first original anthologies I edited were while I was at Omni, and I didn't want a conflict of interest, so I didn't want to buy stories that I could buy for Omni. So my first anthology... Was Blood Is Not Enough, which was original anthology, half original, half reprint, vampire, vampirism stories. The stories were, some of the reprints were stories that I had loved but I couldn't buy for Omni because they were horror and I wasn't really supposed to buy horror. So there was stories, that's what the basic part of the anthology was reprints that I had loved that I couldn't publish or, or classic reprints. And then the second one was Alien Sex. Which was the same thing. I didn't see there were certain stories that I didn't feel I could buy for Omni. They were too sexual, <clears throat> too graphic, were too taboo. At the time, um, there were stories that I turned down that maybe I could have felt comfortable buying later in my tenure there, but at the time I didn't feel comfortable and I was afraid I'd get in trouble. So some of those stories formed the basis of Alien Sex um but i felt it wasn't a conflict of interest because it was stories that i couldn't buy for omni but over time with some more anthologies it just didn't matter because i wasn't able to buy that many stories for omni and no one seemed to care at the magazine whether i also edited anthologies at the same time so to me it was i was able to edit more stories because i always love editing i love working with authors and at omni by the time we finished, by the time the print edition was done, we were only publishing maybe two or three stories an issue, and I wanted to buy more stories. I wanted to edit more stories, so I was happy to start doing anthologies. That's really why I started.
2: Wow. How, how many like, So, how many anthologies to date have you edited? Do you, do you keep count?
0: Well, at, at least 15, probably more, but don't forget 26. Twenty one, twenty six, twenty seven of them are year's best. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the reprint anthologies, And then, you know, I have six of the adult fairy tales, three of the children's fairy tales. Um, you know, I have other, lots of others. So uh, I have I think there was seven reprint anthologies from Omni. And they were, let's see, um, I mean, you know, they're a lot, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> at least 50, and maybe some more. I'm not right. sure. But no. over 30, 35 years, it's not that much, no. especially since, you know, a chunk of them are, are reprints.
2: Right, right. So uh, as, as as you've been an editor, have you seen the material itself evolve, that you were, uh, the, the types of material, the quality of material, has that changed? Well,
0: when I, when I noticed, okay, I don't really, I don't read slush piles anymore, but even so, over time, over the 17 years that I was at Omni and looking at the slush pile, I think the quality... The quality of the writing got better. It didn't mean the stories were good or great, but they seemed to be less horrible, if that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> they were better written. Um, you know, and now I don't really look at slush piles, I solicit stories. So, right. But don't forget, I am, on the other hand, I am reading short stories that are published all every year, and I've been doing so for 27 years because of the year's best. So when I look for the year's best horror, I'm still going through some science fiction and fantasy, trying and mainstream, to look for the horror. So, okay. Sorry, my cat just was trying to eat something she shouldn't be. <laughs> nice.
2: Yeah. yeah. A, well, a
0: bookmark, in fact. Nah. <laughs> you
2: know,
0: stop that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I mean, I do see what's out there, and I I can't say that there's, it's not in what's being written. It's that I think. Certainly, in um, I think there are more people of color writing. I think there are more um, I'm, people who are I'm not sure what how you refer um, Pakistani Americans, uh, British Indians, uh, you know, people who are have, who are who have ancestry from other ethnic oh. other countries, and I think that's great. Um, I mean, I'm seeing really excellent stories from people from all around the world. And it used to be just, you know, England, Canada, the English-speaking world, England, England Canada, America, United States, and Australia. In the last few years, there are more stories coming out of South Africa, um, Philippines. There was a, an active Filipino um, science fiction and fantasy community. I think it's more fantasy than science fiction from what I'm looking at. Um, or be, The borders between the genres are more fluid now, right. for better or worse. Um, so I'm seeing a lot more translated fiction. I mean, I know there have been more efforts to get short fiction of the fantastic and to translate into English. There's Chinese um, science fiction and fantasy coming over. Um, and Japanese, and I think this is fabulous.
2: Well, certainly gives yeah, so, us
0: so more. It's more than that than the necessarily. And well, of course, these people are writing about their own cultures, and I think that is really interesting and important.
2: Well, it keeps it. It keeps the science fiction and fantasy and horror fresh because we're mm-hmm. getting we're getting new voices, we're getting new perspectives. Yes, uh, it's we're, we're getting, terrific. We're getting people that have. Their own backgrounds and their own, mm-hmm. their, their own their own histories that are kind of influencing the way they perceive the world and the future and whatever in whatever genre right. they're writing in. And that, and that keeps it alive for us.
0: Yes, and what's really interesting, okay, there's a, this is in contrast to European and Soviet science fiction and fantasy of the 60s and 70s, which was incredibly boring. I remember there were European, I mean I don't know if the translations were bad or the ideas, they were way behind the curve. They were not... They were, like, dated. By the time we got European science fiction over here, by the time we got Soviet science fiction over here, they were 30 years behind. And it seemed really dated. But now we're actually getting them... It's probably because of the Internet and also because people can email material rather than wait, you know, months for mailing back and forth from foreign countries. It's partly that, and partly... The writers are becoming more engaged with getting their work translated, or they can speak, or they can translate it themselves. So there's definitely more, a more um, modern, contemporary feel of the fiction that is being translated. While, as I said, the fiction that was translated that I used to read in the 80s from these, uh, from other countries, from other from tra- in translation, were really dated by then. They were just so out of date the tone and everything, you know, and and I said it could be the translations, but I think those are the ideas.
2: Yeah. And I think certainly technology has helped make that gap smaller. People can get access to this material quicker uh, and different ways to translate. certainly makes it a little bit easier to. uh,
0: Right. Although I know it's a big frustration to people in other countries. I was at um, Eurocon a few years ago in Kiev and, one of the, and it was in combination with um, a book fair. I, I, don't, I guess it was a. I think I'm not sure it was international or what. But people kept coming up to me. I don't know who they thought I was. But they kept coming up to me and asking, "How do I get my work published in America?" I said, "You have to get it translated." You know, it's like, and they kept saying, "How do I get it published in America?" I said, "You have to." We, unfortunately, not enough people in America. I mean, in the United States, speak other languages fluently enough to translate. I said, you have to find a translator, a good translator, and then we'll look at it. But, you know, they were talking about novels mostly, but, you know, it didn't matter. Um, And I think the younger generation is aware of this Mm. and is getting, you know, somehow it is the Internet. Even whenever Eurocon was, it was only a few years ago, like five or six years ago, that particular Eurocon, maybe more but it seems to me that in the last 3 or 4 years the international community is is of of genre is um communicating much more so right. i think that's really fabulous it's opening the doors for other cultures to get their fiction read by a lot of people here i mean i'd love to get my stuff read in china i'm going to china in april on vacation awesome. and i'm hoping and i'm hoping to meet with um publishers and fans there. Boy, I mean, you know, it's a huge... There's a huge audience there of people... Uh-oh. Oops, sorry. Something yeah. happened in my back room. My cat knocked something over.
1: <laughs> do you want, do you want to check heard. on it?
0: I just No, no, it's all right. Nothing. It didn't crash. It just thumped I mean, the book fell. <laughs> it, and the cat ran, so it's okay. So I'm ho- yeah, I mean, I know there's a huge audience for science fiction there. I don't know if they're interested in fantasy and horror. And I don't know how much... English language stuff they can get over there are allowed to. I mean in translation. Right. They're, I mean, I don't know how strict they are. I know you're not allowed there are things you can't even mention. <laughs> right.
2: Right. Yeah. In the fiction. Yeah.
0: So. Uh well yeah,
2: true. <laughs> Didn't think about yeah. that. That's, that's very true. So maybe some of your work uh, so maybe some of your work might be well some of it might be, but,
0: but I don't know. I yeah. mean who knows? <laughs> yeah, who no. knows?
2: Yeah, who knows? Now, you know, one of the things that uh, you probably have seen changes in, not only in the in the cultural diversity that you're seeing in science fiction and fantasy and horror, but also just the proliferation of women writers in that genre as well. Can you comment well, on that a little bit?
0: Well, I think there are a lot more women writing. Well, okay, the problem with science fiction is not as many people are writing it in general anymore. I think right now... Science fiction is is in a crisis because I think more people are finding it easier to write fantasy. Um, Why is that? Because they, because they don't have to do the same research. If you're going to write realistic science fiction, you have to do research. I don't, And I'm not saying you have to go to, you know, take chemistry, but you have to talk to people who do chemistry if you're going to write about it. And I do think that's a problem, that there's a lot of new things happening in science in science that are not being written about because a lot of writers find it easier to write fantasy. Or or the, common, the science fantasy, which is... There's science fantasy and fantasy science fiction. Science fiction that, sound, that reads like fantasy and fantasy that reads like science fiction, but it's really not. Um, and I think that's a problem for science fiction. But I think there are plenty of women writing fantasy, and... There are a lot of women... And basically, I can mostly talk about short stories. I'm, I'm not that knowledgeable about what's going on in full-length novels because I don't have time to read most of them. Um, <clears throat> in horror, there are few women writing horror. I don't think anyone can doubt that. And the question there is why. Um, and this is something that's been a conversation for the last year or two. There are a lot of women reading it... Um, But why are they not writing it? Um, I'm finding I've been editing horror, well, the the best horror for years. I mean, when I did the year of this fantasy horror, I was the horror person. So in 26 years, um, I think initially, uh, most most of my half of the horror of the year of the fantasy horror was male dominated, and it's because there were few women writing horror. I think it's changed over years. I think what's, one thing that's changing is more writers are going over the edges of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. I mean, there are some of the better writers, some of the best writers can write anything I and mean, they'll write what they feel like and then they market it after that. So I think there are a lot of women writers who are writing science fiction or fantasy and horror who are not seen in the horror community as writing horror because... They're, that's not what they write exclusively. So yes, um, I, I think there are more women writers doing that now, writing horror. But I still think the overwhelmingly majority of writers in the horror field are men. Okay. Um, in that particular, in horror, but not necessarily science fiction. Not certainly not in fantasy.
2: Wow. You know, it's interesting the way the way you said that science fiction is at a crisis, and you know the way you, the way we talked about it, it's almost like some writers aren't willing to do the work necessary to make good, solid science fiction anymore.
0: Well, they want to write really good stories, but maybe they don't want to do the science part. I don't right. know. Yeah. On the other hand, I mean, I've t- I mentioned this the other day. I'm reading. I'm in the middle of um, William Gibson's The Peripheral, which is fabulous. It's honestly like science fiction. I mean, it's, you know, it's real, it's wonderful. I mean, I love it. Hmm. And it's definitely science fiction, and it's, um, you know, he makes no bones about it. And I'm wondering how his, the people who embraced him from the mainstream, how they, if they're actually reading it, and if if they understand it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right, true. True. Um,
0: But, yeah, I think, I'm not, I can understand why people may not want to write science fiction. The other thing, the other thing, and Harlan Ellison mentioned this a few years ago and it's true is that it's harder to find to a lot of the science fiction tropes we had. We've been there. We've gone to, we know it's happening on Mars and Venus. You know, you can't have canals anymore. At least not people in, living in the canals. <laughs> right. There are certain things that you were able to do when we didn't know as much about the far about the planets, the planetary system in space. So it's the The problem is, or the job of the science fiction writer, is to find the new part, new wonderful things that are happening in science and obviously extrapolate and use the knowledge. Well, that's what it always is. You have to use the knowledge of what we're finding out about the other planets, the outer planets and everything else, to create different stories. But I think it's harder because we know that people can't, Live on other planets the way we imagined it, you know, fifty years ago. Right. So yeah, that's so that's it's a tough situation. Yeah. But there's, you know, there are other all kinds of technologies that are happening that can, are very could be very fruitful for fiction.
2: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it was good. It's it's neat to hear your take on that, and uh, it was like was an idea I I hadn't really thought of before you mentioned it. And so um, thank you for bringing that up. I want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Terry Wingling? How did you encounter Terry?
0: Well, I think I met her when she first lived in New York. Um, I'm not sure how we met, but probably through other people. Um, I mean, I I was when well, not once I don't remember exactly where I met her, but probably at a party or a convention. Jim Frankel, was a, who was an editor at Dell, and I used to read for him actually before I got into got to Omni when I was still in book publishing. Um, he's, it was his idea to do The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, to combine it. And that was the first time anyone had ever done that. So he was the packager, and he was the one who suggested that Terry and I work together on it. You know, So he was the first. He was the prime mover for that, although we knew each other before that. So we worked on that. However... Terry and I never really, we, we met maybe once, I mean, certainly when she moved away. She moved to, um, she was in Massachusetts very soon after I met her. And then she moved to Tucson and to England. So, I, I, you know, over the years when we did the year's best together, we maybe talked to each other once a year. Um, and just, so I discovered that we both picked the same stories of horror and fantasy, but we never conferred on what we were taking. The that's only awesome. thing is if we happened to notice that we were taking the same story, we would both put our initials by it and both write a little note about it. But generally, we each did our own thing. I mean, she did the fantasy, I did the horror. But every once in a while, she, you know, thought something I did was I picked with fantasy and I thought something she picked was horror. So that's how we started working together. And then I think Tom Canty, the artist who did the covers for the years that's fantasy and horror for many years, um, he was a really good friend of Terry's, and he was the one who I think had the idea of us doing um, the re- the uh, the uh, adult retold fairy tale series, starting with Snow White Blood Red. So I believe it was his idea, and we decided to do that. And the first one we did was uh, the fifth Snow White Blood Red, and that one that's almost been in print since it came out. I mean, it was in you know it sold an enormous amount for. An anthology and mass market over the years. It's sold like seventy-two thousand copies, wow. and now it's in print from Barnes and Noble as a hardcover again. <laughs> so, That's yeah, awesome. um, yeah. And then the other five we did over time. Um, so, and and are, are those the one, the, are
2: those the one available through Open Road Media?
0: The five, not Snow White Blood Red. Snow White Blood Red is is only, I, it's print, and I don't. And I think it's um, an e-book from Barnes & Noble. I don't, I'd have to check. There was. I can't remember. They, Barnes & Noble, when they bought, um, they bought the two, my two vampires and anthologies, Blood is Not Enough and A Whisper of Blood, and put them together. And, they, and then they bought Snow White Blood Red. And they didn't buy the e-book rights at the time, but we negotiated. And they got one of them, but I can't remember which one. I think it's Snow White Blood Red. So right. that may be an e-book for Nook. All right. So and cool. maybe other kind of publishing. But anyway, yeah. Um, so that's the only one that Open Road doesn't have. Okay. So, that's, so right. that's how we started working together.
2: Yeah. That's awesome. And so are you still editing anthologies together?
0: We've done several together. We did um, Sirens and um, Salon Fantastique, which is a non-themed fantasy anthology. And we did um, four the Mythic series, which which is what Terry called them, uh, The Green Man, The Fairy Reel, Beastly Bride, and Coyote Road. Okay. And uh, Queen Victoria's Book of Spells. Oh, so, brilliant. yes, so we do occasionally co-ed.
2: Awesome. Awesome. So you have these books available from Open Road Media, the ones we just talked about, and mm-hmm. uh, obviously you mentioned some of the ones that are available in Barnes & Noble and... Obviously, there's tons of other places that you can uh, get material as well. Currently, you're editing for tour.com or you're, I guess, a consulting editor. Is that what they kind of how you're I at?
0: Guess I, th- I can't remember if, that's, if, that, if, I, if I'm called consult. I'm probably, yes, I'm probably a consulting editor. <laughs>
2: okay. All right. And, and I
0: buy short stories for them.
2: Okay. And so does that, that but th- these, are, these are stories that you are seeking people out for.
0: Yes, I mean, basically, I'm not reading. Tor.com has a slush pile that you can anyone can submit to, uh, and um, some of the editors look at that. I don't. Yeah. So I basically, you know, contact people who I want to write, submit, and ask them to send me stories.
2: Awesome. Very good. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, earlier before I think we started recording about Something that, uh, about some of your works being, or some of the works that you edited being involved in some sort of charity fundraiser. Do you want to tell us the a little bit about bundle. it? The Humble Bundle. Yeah, tell us about the <laughs> Humble you can Bundle. See
0: if say it five times fast.
2: <laughs> no, not a chance in hell. Go ahead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I didn't know what the Humble Bundle, I had been hearing about the Humble Bundle, and had no idea what it was. And then my publisher, Tachyon, um, they published Love, Chris, Monsters earlier this year, which is a reprint anthology. And they said, Humble Bundle is going to take Lovecraft Monsters. I said, that's nice. What does that mean? (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, it's a charity. They sell it with a bunch of other books. And, you know, and hopefully everyone gets money. I said, okay, that's nice. So that went, it happened. I didn't bother looking it up at the time. So I I kind of had heard about people talking about it. But I I just knew a portion went to charity, but I really knew nothing else. Anyway, we got... um, it happened a few months ago, and it was extremely successful. I said, wow, I like that. Let's do some more. So anyway, Tachyon, I don't understand exactly who approaches whom, If humble bundle people approach the publishers, or the publishers approach the humble bund- bundle people. But um, I know Tachyon presented some more anthologies, including a few uh, uh, two others that I had published with them. And they picked one. They picked Darkness, Two Decades of Modern Horror. And so then I said, okay, now I'm going to see what the heck in Humble Bundle. So you can go to the page. What it is, I think it was started by some gamers, some people who had a gaming company. I I may be wrong, but this is the impression I got. They started it, and they decided to sell a bunch of – they would put together a bunch of their games. People would pay what they want, and a chunk of the money would go to a charity. There were two choices of charities. I think the uh, Comic Book Defense League and – um, one for about violence against women, I'm not sure. I mean, At least, it may be different ones over for each bundle, I'm not sure. But there are two charities, so people would pay what they wanted. And then at the end of the, a certain time period, the money is divided between the charity, the publishers, and the authors. So anyway, darkness is up now. And what they do is they mix and match. I mean, the, the bundle that I is now, is a horror bundle. It went up the day after. It went up, I think, November 1st. Um, it's up for like two weeks. And mine is mixed with... What happens, you have four books. Well, a combination of books and graphic novels. Right now, Song of Kali by Dan Simmons is up. A Brian Keene zombie novel is up. And uh, two graphic novels or... Uh, Oh, no, I know. Um, Paula Grande's Zombie Anthology is up. And those are four books, and you pay what you want for those. Now, if you pay $8.64, I'm not sure why that amount, (laughs) you get get another choice of four other books and graphic novels. If you pay $15 or over, you get all of those plus my book and plus um, Jill Hill's Lock and Key, Volume 1, something about Lovecraft. And there's a Buffy one, and there's a Archie's Afterlife, and a whole bunch of stuff. So, um, And you can go to the page. And I guess it looks like you can also choose how much goes to, which, to the charity, how much goes to the publishers and the authors. So right now, I think we have eight days left, and it looks good. Anyway, that's what I know about it, that yeah. a chunk of the money, a third of the money goes to the author's of the money goes to the publisher. Well, the publisher divides their money with the author, and then part of the money goes to the um, charity. And it sounds great. It's been doing really, I mean, it seems like a great way to raise money.
2: It's a good way to raise money, and uh, according to what you said, it's been uh, been good for your authors as well.
0: Absolutely.
2: No, and I'm on their site right now, and uh, you, can, you can pay PayPal, pay with your Amazon account. There's a, a ton of different ways to do it, and uh, mm-hmm. and it uh <clears throat> Rain is the other organization that's being used um, along with the. Oh comic right, yeah,
0: yeah, there it is, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Ra- the rape. So, and a, yeah, and I can see. I don't know. Do you get the statistics? I mean, can anyone look at the statistics? I'm looking at the statistics. So I can see how much money is being raised.
2: Yeah, they said uh, what is it? Sixty-six thousand dollars. Yeah,
0: sixty-six thousand. So that's awesome. One hundred eighty-two, yeah, and I can see how many cheapskates there are because some a lot of people pay a
2: dollar. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's cheapskates. This is a charity. Pay more than a buck. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I mean you are hel- helping. You are helping some. <laughs> you are helping something out, and you are getting something in return. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, you are helping
0: out authors and editors. You know, it's yeah. like it's great. I mean, it's elect. Obviously, it's all electronic. Right. Because when the first one was going on, I said, "Aren't we going to run out of copies? We're going to have to go another printing." "It's electronic." Is it duh? Yeah, oh okay. uh, so it's unlimited, which is great.
2: Yeah. That 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 is that that really is that really is awesome. It's it's great. Right. Is there if, if someone you know, if someone's tuning in and listening, you know, maybe for the first time and, and hasn't heard you know, maybe heard of you, is there a certain anthology you might direct them to that you would corrupt them with?
0: Well yeah, I mean I have um well, I have a few new anthologies out this year. Um I have Fearful Symmetries, which is a non theme horror anthology. That came out from tri That was my Kickstarter. It's the only time I've ever done a Kickstarter. And the reason I did it was because non-theme anthologies are really hard to sell. And I've only done a handful of non-theme anthologies, and none of them have sold as well as my theme anthologies. So when people say, I don't like theme anthologies, do non-theme. It's like, well, yeah, but you don't buy them. Well, not enough people buy them. So the publisher's not going to publish them. Um, but anyway, <coughs> excuse me. I have done some non-theme, and Triple Symmetries is the newest. And just out is Nightmare Carnival, which is all original stories about dark carnivals. We would have loved to call it Dark Carnival, but obviously we couldn't because of Bradbury. And uh, some nasty stories there, and some dead clowns, and that's from Dark Horse Books. And The Cutting Room from Tachyon is an all-reprint anthology of dark stories about movie-making in Hollywood. And um, there's one original in that. There's also one original story in uh, Lovecraft's Monster that came out earlier this year, an excellent novella by John Langan. So that's without of mine. But if you want to get an overview of what's happening in horror, you might you could do worse by buying you know the best horror of the year number six, which came out a few months ago. And that way you can. I also have a lot of honorable mentions, so you can see where a lot of the what I consider the best horror came from during the year
2: Awesome, awesome Well, Alan, thank you so much for sitting down with the Sci-Fi Diner virtually here and, uh, and chatting with us just about your career, your life editing in general uh, the world of science fiction and, and some, of the, some of the things that you've been putting out most recently
1: You're very welcome, it was great Thank you so much for visiting the Sci-Fi Diner we hope you enjoyed the food, the service, and the conversations. If you'd like to share your thoughts regarding what we've talked about, or tell us what you're watching or reading, flip open your communicators and contact us at one 508 4343 or click the SpeakPipe link at scifydinerpodcast.com, or send an mp3 or typed email to scifidinerpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation on our Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash sci-fi diner. We'll share your thoughts on our listener feedback show. If you'd like to support the diner beyond the conversation, you can always throw some coins in the tip jar at sci-fi diner